This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. And it took off for a mile. A full mile the thing ran. This is a 100-yard shot. I'm not going to miss. And we went up and looked at it afterward, and yeah, the shot was right on the money as far as where I would put it. And that's where I said, okay, yeah, no question. It does matter uh, what, what you're shooting with. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode, if you can call it that, of Ron Spomer Outdoors podcast. And we are podcasting with uh, a familiar name in the YouTube gun world. I think you'll catch on really quick. The channel is called Backfire. It's very well done. And the gentleman who does it, his name is Jim Harmer. And he means no harm, pardon the pun, with all the guns that he's working with. He's just trying to educate all of us and does an excellent job of it. Jim, welcome to Ron Spomer Outdoors Podcast. We are so pleased to have you. Thanks, Ron. I'm glad to be here. I've watched your channel for a long time. Well, I appreciate that. I have watched yours and said, wow, this man knows what he's doing. And that brings up my first question is exactly what is your background in firearms? Were you coming from a hunting uh, or a target shooting or the military? How did you get into it? Yeah, I mean, like I guess like most people, I grew up shooting a lot of pellet guns uh, in the backyard. But my family didn't hunt when I was, I, I think, 14 or 16. It just it just entered my head and it was one of those things that was just like, this is happening. And my dad was awesome. just willing to, uh, you know, take hunter's ed with me and go. And we mm -hmm. just, we started out bow hunting. I bow hunted all through high school and, um, the firearms I'd always really enjoyed, but I, I never hunted with a firearm until I was an adult. It was always mm -hmm. bow hunting, uh, mm -hmm. in, in high school. And I worked at a gun range for a few years for the boy scouts also, you know, during the summers, I'd go work at the at the shotgun range, archery range, rifle range. Um, right. And that's kind of what started it was when I was a teenager. Now, can you think of what exactly inspired you? What, you? Did you read an article or see a video or 
maybe get to shoot a bow at in Boy Scout camp. Yeah, I think it was moving from Texas to Idaho when I was a young teenager. And it just, you know, seeing the mountains and public land and everything, that just felt like we need to do this. There's We lived in Texas and there's obviously a ton of hunting there, but it's private land and we didn't have mm-hmm. that, you know? And so when we got here and we realized like, you can just go anywhere you want in Idaho and you're set. Um, that was, that was just exciting. And so fishing and hunting just became my obsession. Well, you know, that's really similar to what I did as a kid. My dad didn't hunt. My mom didn't want us even having BB guns because she was afraid of them. But I had cousins and uncles and of course, every other kid in small town, rural America and out in the farms and stuff had BB guns, pellet guns, and didn't take long until you were into the pheasant hunting with your uncles and such. And But I did start bow hunting too. I went to Boy Scout camp and they had the archery range. And I just, wow, there was just something magical about that string and bow concept. And I started my first year hunting with a bow because I was too young to hunt legally with a firearm without an adult supervision. <laughs> and the adults back in those days were way too busy working to take kids out hunting. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I, like the, I had a I had a warped sense of what hunting is those first few years because I worked all summer at the scout camp, and so mm-hmm. I knew right where the deer were. And <laughs> and then the hunting season would open just a couple weeks after the after scout camp would end. And so my first couple seasons of bow hunting, you could measure my season in seconds more than minutes. <laughs> I mean, we knew oh right gosh. where they were. And I just, when I, I had no idea what I was doing. I thought you've got to be stealthy and everything. And so I would bury my clothes for three weeks before the hunt. Oh so I was like, oh, they've told me you got to have scent free everything. So I buried them and I, I wore a full ghillie suit, the full ghillie suit uh, buried. And my dad would say, oh, I don't know if I want to bury my clothes and I'm like, dad, you're burying it. <laughs> and so I don't, yeah, I mean, I just, you know, read books from the library is all you could do at that time. And so, yeah. you know, people say you got to control scent. And I was like, oh, well, that's, that's what I'm going to do then. It worked, I guess. It worked. Huh? Oh, so you bow hunted for how many years before you got into firearms? Yeah, all through through uh, high school and college, I shot archery. I shot a lot of firearms, but not for hunting. It was after mm-hmm. after college, after my law degree, that I started hunting with a firearm. And really, the reason was I I didn't like the wounding the game. I didn't like how took how long it took them to die. And I really worked hard to get good at archery, but man, I just I'll admit that man, it just. I felt like the animal suffered needlessly when a rifle could do the job a bit better. And so I don't have anything against archery, but for me, I just, I felt like the firearm was the way to go. You know, that's interesting because my archery experience, I have never felt that the animal suffered, at least not with a good shot, Any, anything in the boiler room. I was amazed at how quickly they died. And so often I would shoot one and it would act as if it didn't even know it had been shot. Of course, I see that with firearms quite a bit too. I think a lot of people who haven't hunted a lot have misconceptions about that, but I never felt that they were actually suffering. It's just the arrow went through and they'd either be alarmed by the strike and run off and fall over, or sometimes they just stood there and looked around and went back to feeding till they got woozy and fell over. So, Yeah, and I, I definitely saw that at times too. I remember distinctly one of my very first years I, sh- I shot, it looked like a perfect shot and you know, your, your mind's spinning so fast at that moment. And right. the deer just kept on eating. It was just eating. And I was like, you're shot. 
<laughs> and eventually I could see blood and it just tipped over yeah. and that was the end. And I thought that is perfect. But other times, not so perfect. I would yeah. say I don't think I I don't think we ever lost any game. But there were several times that it took two or three arrows, and ah, just ah, I didn't like that. Yeah, how many how many times has that happened with bullets and firearms that you've had? I to- I need to knock on wood. My desk is metal, and it's problematic because I say dumb things all the time. But I need Your to knock head. on wood. But I have never <laughs> lost a big game animal with the firearm. I've had wow. some that took more than one shot, but I have never yeah. lost one. And that's a terrible thing to say because it doesn't mean I'm a better shot or anything than anybody else. It just means I haven't been unlucky yet because, you know, even the very best out there, things happen. Yeah, hey, more power to you. You know, and that's something I really appreciate about modern sport hunters for all the crap we take for being heartless trophy hunters and all the nonsense that the, the left wants to stack on us invariably hunters are concerned about making good, clean kills. They really work hard at it. And I think that's a lot of reason why our channels, I think, are so popular. People are always wanting more information about guns, firearms, cartridges, bullets, and how they all work because that's their goal. They want to find, choose, and use the best. Do you find that to be true with your comments? Oh, very much so. Yeah, Yeah. and it's kind of hard to answer those questions sometimes because it depends so much where you are, what your experience with choosing that gear is. You know, for the Nebraska hunter from a ground blind, you're, I mean, 50 yards is, it, that's period. <laughs> it is going to be a 50-yard shot, you know, um, or you're, you know, in a tree stand and you just can't even see very far. And so yeah. often, you know, if that's the case, does it matter a whole lot? What you, there aren't a lot of bad choices. Um, yeah. for something like that. Um, but then you get into uh, different situations. You know, now we're in Montana and we've got a very wide open basin. We got to make that cross basin shot and suddenly, whoa, now now our gear matters a lot and knowing that gear. Um, yeah. So I, I think it's interesting how, how different it is depending on the situation you're in. Sure. Now, do you find, as a hunter yourself, have you found that it does make significant difference with some of the bigger animals? Let's say elk, moose, bigger bears, uh, that you need to go to a bigger cartridge, which we pretty much all assume that's just what you do. The size of the animal goes up, the size of the cartridge and the powder supply and the bullet should go up to match it. Otherwise, it won't work. Have you found that to be true in your experience? I have, but I also want to turn the question around on you to see if yours matches that because uh, I started to wonder there for a little while. Are we kind of are, are we overplaying how much the 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 terminal impact is on the on the terminal performance of the bullet and the particular cartridge used compared to just is it hitting the right spot? Um, and mm-hmm. obviously you have to hit the right spot. It doesn't matter how much power you have. If you hit it in the hoof, it's not dying. Right. Yeah, so I get yeah. that. But I wondered at some point, I thought, are we overplaying this a little bit? And we went to Africa, a, a weird turn of events. And all of a sudden we, we needed to hunt five blue wildebeest and we hadn't intended to hunt any, any of the bigger planes game. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and a blue wildebeest is a, is a tough, mean, big, tough animal. Uh, it's yeah. very much an equivalent of an elk. You know, the, the reputation yeah. an elk has for toughness, blue wildebeest is, I don't know, maybe even eclipsing it. Um, I agree. And we, we hunted, the rifles we had brought were 6.5 PRC and 6.5 Creedmoor. Would not be my first choices, 
for Blue Wildebeest, but it's what we had brought and we had some frustrations anyway with the, with the outfitter, with the farmer down there. Um, and it's just, that's the way things rolled out. And I thought, okay, well, we're going to do this. We're going to make good shots. And, oh man, I just, no, the, the performance was not great. I shot one blue wildebeest that, uh, maybe a hundred yards and it took off for a mile, a full mile. The thing ran and it was wide open country. I knew exactly where it was. We could watch it the whole time. And, and I mean, this is a hundred yard shot. You're, I'm not going to miss. <laughs> um, yeah. and so, and we went up and looked at it afterward and yeah, the shot was right on the money as far as where I would put it. And mm-hmm. thing was able to run a mile. Um, yeah. and, and that's where I said, okay, yeah, no question. It does matter, uh, what, what you're shooting with. See, now that's interesting because I had a real similar situation. Blue wildebeest, wide open country in Namibia. Shot it right in the boiler room with a 375 H and H 300 grain bullet. That's like, oh man, everything dies instantly with that one, right? It ran a mile or more. We watched it. We could see the blood on it. It got in with the herd, so we couldn't quickly shoot again. We we're waiting for it to fall over. You know, perfect shot. Great. Here we go. And it didn't fall over. When it came out of the cover with the herd, we couldn't get a clean shot at it. And then we couldn't necessarily tell which one it was. And as we watched and watched, we finally found. Uh, the one with the blood spot right on his chest, like, okay, that's him. Why isn't he falling over? And we watched him go back to grazing until they got into some cover and bedded. We sneaked in there and we looked at every animal in that herd. We could not find him. We got extra help out from the ranch, the ex- excellent local trackers, and we never could find that animal. Wow. We don't know if he survived and went off by himself or we, of course, looked for any birds the next day or two. Uh, and never saw any sign of them feeding on anything. So there was a 375. And it's your same animal you were getting with a little bit of trouble with your 6.5. Then my wife has taken them with a 7 millimeter 08 and a 308. And I've taken them with similar cartridges over the years with no trouble. So I, my conclusion is it really has more to do with the bullet and where you put it, as you said earlier. And there's always a little bit of fudge factor if you've got more bullet. I think, yeah, it just makes sense that bigger is going to be better. But I don't think it's the major difference that we make it out to be, going back to your earlier question on it. I think too many people make it to be the most important thing. You've got to have more energy and a heavier bullet. And I tend to say, why? What exactly is that giving you that you're not getting from the smaller bullet? And sometimes it's not even energy. Yeah, so I, I hope you don't mind me asking you some questions, but I you're the expert here, right? Um, like like ropes on the Goodyear blimp. You know that movie? What about Bob? Anyway, um, so if you could add whatever forty grains to your bullet, or add two hundred feet per second to your bullet, what would you go with? I, I mean, obviously, I'm I'm talking about a general general circumstance. Do you generally yeah. lean toward the speed or the bullet weight? You know, I sort of compromise, but I would lean toward the speed because, as you know, you quadruple your energy if you double your speed. You only double your energy if you double your weight. But that depends on the bullet. If the bullet can stand up to that speed, then I think you have the advantage. So uh, a swift A-frame, a really hard-bonded bullet, some of the more controlled expansion bullets, and especially the copper bullets. You can drive those lightweight bullets really fast. They retain almost all of their weight. They have excellent penetration, punch through most of the time, do lots of ripping and tearing as they go through. To me, yeah, that, that's great. 
I don't see just a huge advantage unless you go up several calibers. You can't go from, say, a 7 millimeter to a 308 and expect you're going to get significant difference just because you've got a wider bullet. There's not that much wider. Right. And after they've expanded, you know, kind of all bets are off. As long as they retain enough shank and mass to continue driving, they can expand to 1.5 to maybe 2x the, the initial diameter. And then they're doing the ripping and tearing because of the expansion. So I just don't see enough difference until you go up to maybe, say you jump from a 0.284 bullet to a 0.338. Then I think you might be starting to see some benefit that way. Although I cannot absolutely guarantee that's going to happen. It just makes sense that you get a bigger projectile, you're tearing more. It's just like with a broadhead. Do you want a wider broadhead or a narrower broadhead? So you're going to tear and cut more tissue with more surface area. So yeah does make sense. But as far as hammering that animal, Jim, I, I just never rarely seen that. I have no. hit some animals with so much foot pounds of energy that according to the formula, they should have launched at least 10 feet in the air and they just stood there, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absorbed 3000 foot pounds. I could definitely, definitely agree with that. I have coincidentally been seen several neck shots, uh, recently on game. Um, and People are really moving a lot toward high shoulder. So if you look at, you know, your, your very traditional, you picture your deer and, you know, you're a, a little bit down from the center vertically and then a couple inches behind that shoulder, you know, right in that crease, right? If we call that our, our you know, traditional, that's where you shoot a deer spot. You know, mm -hmm. A lot of people are moving to that high shoulder, which, you know, you know, very high on the tip, tip of that shoulder, more toward the spine. And I'm definitely interested in that. I've tried it a few times and it worked great, but I, I question it a little bit because if the point is to hit the spine, I've seen a few hunts recently where the hunter wanted to save a bunch of meat and went for a neck shot. And boy, that the spine is a small target. And, and yes. if you do miss it, now we're in a very non-vital zone. Um, and so it made me wonder about the high shoulder as well, because now we're leaving the comfort of the really big lung, the really big lungs to go for a tiny piece of the lungs and hope to clip, clip some spine Ma makes <laughs> yeah. me wonder. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking the same way I have used that high shoulder shot. And it is deadly when you make it, you usually break some of the spine. And the nice thing about it is that if you shoot a little bit low, of course you get more lung. Yep. You shoot a little bit high, you square up the spine really nicely. If you're a little far back, you're still catching lung. If you're a little bit far forward, you're usually back into the spine again on the neck. So when I come up that front leg on that high shoulder shot, I'll shade it a little bit to the front of the shoulder because that spine is dipping down right there and it gives me a little more chance for hitting that and still picking up lungs. And of course, you're punching through some bone on that scapula and probably driving that into the lungs too for additional damage. And that can blow down almost to the heart sometimes, depending on how they're standing and how that bullet just happens to hit. Yeah, so it is a good shot. Uh, I think the complaint that I see most often from guys is that they don't want to waste any meat. It's always behind the shoulder so you don't waste meat. And that has sort of been the way I grew up and hunted. But also, I'm considering more often now what some of a lot of the African PHs will say. Would you rather lose four or five pounds of hamburger on the shoulder or the entire animal because you shot too far back? Yep. Yeah, that's exactly right. And and to that point, that kind of brings up the copper bullet question for me. 
that I've only hunted with copper bullets once. I every time I'm going on hunt, I say, do I wanna? Do I want to experiment with something new? <laughs> or do I want to go with what works? And so I've kind of stuck with the same thing for a long time. Uh, but this last this fall, my son had an elk hunt, and um, and I thought, okay, let's let's try this out. I was doing some load development for the seven PRC, and so I thought, okay, yeah, let's let's chuck chuck in a copper bullet there. And the wound channel is so much cleaner. You have so much less bloodshot meat and shards of, of lead everywhere that after seeing that, I thought, Ooh, I could get real used to this. And then it brings up the other question for me that says, if we're shooting a copper bullet, we can pretty well guarantee full penetration or really, really deep penetration at least, uh, Mm -hmm. even if we're shooting a six, five PRC. And so I've heard some people respond on my videos saying like, well, yeah, if you need penetration, just use a copper bullet on that 6.5 PRC. And, and then what's the complaint? And I say, ah, I, I, there, there's a fine point there. You're going to get the penetration, even with the smaller caliber. It's something that I don't know I want to be the guinea pig on a lot, but it's a fine point. Yeah, that's one thing about my career as a magazine writer all those years was that I was expected to experiment with a lot of different things. So I do have a lot of experience with different copper bullets, and I've probably hunted with a half a dozen different brands and such. Some of them work a lot better than others, especially the early ones where they were still experimenting with designs and all. But boy, the ones that they have now, say the uh, tipped triple shock, that sort of that laid the groundwork for everyone who followed. And now you're getting variations on that theme with the grooves around it to reduce the copper fouling and the pressures. And some of them are going to bore riders, so they're really reducing the pressures and the fouling. And then they open up those noses, and they've just proved the hydraulics of that whole system work so well. Now, you will still hear hunters complaining that, oh, it was just a pencil hole sized exit hole, and, and it didn't open up. Go inside of the animal. Quite often that they do not make a big hole coming out, but inside you've got some significant damage in the heart and lungs area, really torn up and significant bleeding on the inside. And as old John Barsness always said to guys who claim that they shot this deer and the bullet failed, they said, now, where exactly did the bullet fail when you were examining the dead deer? (laughs) (laughs) That's right. (laughs) You know, it is hard to, to really know what's best though, because I've done quite a lot of ballistics gel tests and kind of some extreme ones just to try to see if I can get a bullet to fail. And boy, it just feels like everything shoots ballistic gel well. (laughs) And then you put it on some meat and suddenly things just change. It just does. I I took a a 28 nozzler and I took two two by fours. I cut out, you know, a little section of a two by four. So it's going through four inches of pine in before the ballistics gel and I shot it at 20 yards. So, and I shot a very frangible bullet, an ELDX kind of not known for being a deep penetrator, but a great bullet. And I said, okay, 28 nozzler is slinging that bullet at 40 yards with an ELDX. And we're going to go through four inches of wood before the ballistics gel. I thought, here's an example where we're going to see this thing blow up and not penetrate. Honestly, it just looked textbook. It looked great. (laughs) And I I just, I don't know what it is about ballistics gel. I know scientifically it is, you know, try to make it just like meat, but there's just something different on an animal that I I can't imagine that, uh, I don't know. It's different. 
Yeah, it doesn't have the grain. It doesn't have the fibers. It doesn't have the tendons and all the. Think of all the tough things that are in meat. It's not just uniform like ballistic gel. And I think that's part of the problem. But you're on the right track by adding something hard in there like wood. Not that we're shooting any wooden animals, but uh, bone, obviously. And But then again, I think there's nothing that's going to duplicate a live animal. A lot of guys will use a side of a side of beef or pork with the ribs in it and all sorts of other things. And that's great, but they doesn't have blood pressure in it. It's not living tissue that responds differently and such. So I just don't think there's anything that is going to duplicate a living animal. And then when you're shooting living animals, you cannot have a controlled experiment because mm-hmm. you don't know the level of their excitement, their adrenaline, exactly what position they're in. Is their muscles tense or not? Is the heart in a systolic pressure or whatever the other one is, you know, and wow, there are a lot of differences going on there. So I just don't think you can declare anything is absolute, like this particular shot with this particular bullet at this velocity is going to knock them down every time, guaranteed. It just never happens that way. You can, you can get close, but. Yeah, it's the truth. The the other thing that I thought, thought is interesting that I heard from Seth Swerzik from Hornady is he said when he's picking a copper bullet, he looks for the lightest copper bullet available in that caliber. And I thought, what in the world at first? And then I thought, oh, that makes a lot of sense because you're going to penetrate. We're going to get yeah. penetration with a copper bullet. And so you might as well shoot the lightest one out there. It's going to increase your speed significantly. And for a lot of people, the big drawback from the copper bullets is uh, is the BCs. You're, you're not just not going to get the same BC as you're going to get with a lead bullet. But if we can drive it a whole lot faster, we can compensate for that. I, I think it's interesting. I, I still have a lot of testing to do. We shot this one with an LRX and the result was absolute immediate, I mean, catastrophic fall over death. He, he went with the high shoulder shot. Um, mm-hmm. So it was, it was excellent, but I, I got a lot more testing to do before I could say, that I prefer a, a copper to a to a lead bullet. Yeah, I've uh, I've pretty much satisfied my curiosity about the effectiveness of copper bullets, and I'm on board. I've just I started off using them for mule deer hunting and elk and stuff in Idaho, and then I went to Africa with it and had excellent performance there. The I can remember the pH when I got there was real skeptical. He'd never heard of this crazy thing, and and after we got done, he said, "My God, where can I get some of those bullets? It's like a soft <laughs> point and a solid in one." And that really does sum it up. So, yeah, you know, those I, are really coming on strong. I know you've been shooting the the hammer bullets or have experimented with those. The They look really interesting to me. I have some, but I haven't yet loaded them up. One hesitation that I've had that I wanted to talk to the company and ask about is uh, some videos have been passing around online of the hammer bullets that's showing a real wild, never seen anything like that kind of vapor trail. Uh, coming behind the bullet. Um, And it was first, I think, kind of maybe even advertised as, wow, you know, look, it's just neat looking. Um, But I guess, honestly, it made me wonder, like, have these things been, like, do we have the engineering to make sure this is as, you know, aerodynamic and stuff as some of the others? Because I look at the boxes and the boxes say they're basing their BC off actual drop. And I thought, oh, that means maybe we haven't shot this on Doppler. And so I, I guess I, I just had that question of if mm-hmm. if they have gone through that testing. I don't know. But it's something that I keep hearing people talk about, and I'm anxious to try it. But that's one hesitation I've had because uh, I, I guess I wanted to know that. 
Yeah, I asked them about it, and they don't actually know what that vapor trail is. They figured it was leftover oil because they lathe turn those bullets, and there's all sorts of oil, of course, on the lathe operation. And they thought it was maybe trapped in the nose. But then they went through an elaborate process of cleaning the bullets to get the oil out, and they shot some, and they still got the vapor trail, which is, hmm. seems really weird. You know, when you look at the bullet and it's got that double radius groove thing, so instead yep. of having a, a vertical line down and up like the Barnes bullets do for the relief grooves, they ro roll it like that. And the result is that the very top of it that is riding on the bore of the rifle is very minimal. And that really reduces their pressures. And you wonder if maybe the air coming up and down through those grooves as the bullet's moving through does something to stir up that vapor trail. I don't know. Right. And then I have, I've shot them in some pretty dry conditions being up here in Idaho, but also some fairly wet ones. And it didn't seem to make a difference. So I don't know if it's air, uh, moisture in the air that's doing it. Um, but I'll tell you what, it is sure cool to see it in slow motion video. It's cool. Yeah. It's really neat. <laughs> yeah. It's my, looking, son's, my son's, my son's here with the Barnes LRX. It had a neat vapor trail. It just makes for cool video when you capture it. seems like it, yeah. it, it shows a lot better when it's cold outside. Uh-huh. Yeah. That could, that could be condensing the air. I don't know. It's dense air when it's cold. Hey, speaking about um, the copper and the lead bullet stuff, of course, a lot of people are talking not just about the ballistic performance, but this stuff about lead poisoning and condors and golden eagles and bald eagles and all the rest of it. And I've written about it several times, and I've talked to quite a few of the biologists working on these programs, because just outside of Boise, they've got the Peregrine Fund and the condors that come in with lead poisoning in them. They rehab them. They chelate them to get the lead out of the system, and they've got all kinds of documentation to prove that this is going on, including little pieces of lead from bullets. Um, what are your feelings about that whole aspect of it? Yeah, I, I, a few things. Well, I've, I've never worried about it in, in the animals that I've shot. I get the meat, you know, you cut out the bloodshot done. I'm set, you know, but I have seen, um, somebody, somebody had a picture of an X-rayed animal after it was shot. And, wow. oh, there was just little pieces of lead everywhere in there. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, I I know, you know, one tiny piece of lead isn't going to, you know, drop your IQ 50 points and bring you to an early death. I get it. But also, man, I mean, the, a big purpose of this is about getting really good, high-quality meat. And so I, thought, I, I don't want that. I talked to my brother, who's a veterinarian down here in southern Utah, in Price, Utah, actually. And he, he's a hunter. And so he's not, um, you know, he has no bias here saying, oh, you know, trying to, I think some people could try to drum up problems just to, to try to stop hunting. And he said he actually gets a lot of birds in, uh, that are lead poisoned. Now I, hmm. he doesn't know. And I don't know that that just, that that's because of hunting. Um, there could be lots of places that, 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 that comes from, but his experience was that it's happening a lot. And so that is something that I've had a lot of pause with thinking like, oh, well, maybe this is yet another reason to look at the copper bullets um, for, for my own health as, as well as the environment yeah. around me. Yeah. And that's how I come down is that I think we should all make a voluntary choice on this one. I, I never sure. like government. Yeah. The, the heavy hand of government forcing people to do something. I, I told someone who was making this argument that we ought to outlaw it right now by golly and we're going to save the world and all. I said, you look, they outlawed litter, littering a good 50, <laughs> 60 years ago. Did that end littering? 
Yeah. So if you force people to do it, that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to happen. Whereas if you can show them a better bullet, better performance, better terminal performance, and they make the switch, I think that's worth it. Now, in in condor habitat, where they're absolutely showing that, yes, we're something like 70% of the condors come in with lead poisoning every year. And it happens during the hunting season. So they've got it pretty well documented. This is where they're picking it up. They're eating the carrion. They're eating the gut piles and that sort of thing and getting all these little bullet flecks. And bald eagles, golden eagles, anything, carrion eater is going to pick it up. I haven't seen evidence that any mammal gets poisoned by eating that, including humans. Because I, I've always said we've been shooting animals with lead bullets for how many years now? And I don't know, maybe I would be a, a nuclear scientist if I didn't eat lead shot <laughs> pheasants and game and stuff. Maybe it'd be a lot smarter. I don't know. <laughs> but it doesn't seem to have set the human animal back too far. And our eagle population, the bald eagle population is exploding. They're everywhere now ever since we outlawed DDT. So it's not keeping that population down. But I always come down to this. There is documentation that these birds eat the lead poison meat or the little flecks of it that are in the meat and they do die from it. And as hunters, if we want to say that we really care about wildlife, we want to live with it sustainably and utilize it, we don't want to just willy-nilly kill it, I think we come off looking pretty crass and uncaring if we just say, yeah, so an eagle eats the deer guts that I shot with my lead bullet and dies, I don't care. I don't think that's good PR for hunters. I, I totally agree with you, and I think sometimes our community of just, you know, the, the culture of hunting Sometimes get so jaded on some of these green initiatives getting rammed down our throats that you look into yes. and we say, this is bogus. This isn't even yeah. real. This is about power and money. I think we get so jaded with hearing so many of those things that when somebody then tells us, even if it's not a law, somebody is informing us about a copper bullet and the benefit it could has because we're so jaded. It can be easy to have that kind of attitude. Like you're talking about just, ah, you know, yeah. uh, I'm yep. grabbing my F one fifty and my leads and I'm going to go hunting, you know? <laughs> and, and I think I'm guilty of that sometimes too, that I just, I don't want to hear it because yep. I'm so tired of that stuff getting crammed down my throat, but that's not yeah. the right approach to have. We should be the very best at, at all of these things for conserving yeah. the, the wildlife. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have got such a good foundation on which to stand as hunters in this nation and in Africa as well. When you look at all the good that we've done, and my gosh, and there's so many species that we thought were going to go extinct at the turn of the 20th century, and hunters brought them back, hunter conservationists. I and mean, we can stand proud for that. But I think we're starting to lose it because the last two or three generations that have grown up with it, all the elk and on the increase in cougars and everything, it's all the geese came back. My gosh, there's Canada geese now are a plague. When I was a kid, if you saw a Canada goose and shot one, that was like getting a trophy elk, for gosh sake. Yeah, so there's another aspect of being jaded. You know, we've had it so good for so many decades now that we sort of tend to forget about the struggles that we had early on bringing these populations back. So I think that uh, you're right on about how, how to handle it and people get jaded and all that. It's too bad, but I always say to follow the science. That's but that's right. funny. That's a funny thing, too. I will get people commenting saying, oh, they had the ballistic tables and those trajectory charts and all that computerized nonsense, man. Just get out and shoot it. You'll figure it all out. Well, yeah, if you shoot long enough, I mean, Daniel Boone didn't have a ballistics calculator and he, <laughs> and he figured it out. But But really, you can 
you can learn so much more if you run some ballistic tables and then test it in the field against what you're getting from the computer. The math and the science are there, but there are a lot of variables, including your bore of your rifle, your particular load. As you well know, you've seen it. Uh, just because the manufacturer says the BC of that bullet is 0.546 doesn't necessarily mean it is. Right. Not when it <laughs> yes. comes out of your gun. <laughs> yep. Yeah, and some of them are more honest about it than others uh, yeah. about what what VCs to expect. But yeah, there are definite differences. Another one that I have had a lot of questions about recently is recoil, and uh, I have uh, you know a big rifle recoil table on my website. Maybe you do it as well. Um, and I, it's good to have that information because recoil is one that I mean we can dial this to a science. We know it. we can figure out exactly how many foot pounds of recoil that rifle is producing. However, it depends so drastically on some other factors that are, would be nearly impossible to test. For example, the recoil pad and how well is that going to soak up that recoil? But, and then some people have, you know, a little force gauge, you know, to kind of figure out how much that recoil pad is, is, is soaking up until now you're prone. And now just a, an inch and a half of your shoulder is even right. touching the, the pad. Now it's going to be very different. Or if you had a muzzle break or a, Suppressor, suppressors yep. have totally changed everything for me. Uh, just the weight of the gun, the weight of the scope. And so I, I love having that information out for people, but I, I'm always telling people you can have a 6.5 PRC that recoils half of what a 6.5 Creedmoor does, depending on those other kind of soft factors. Sure. Yeah. And the stock and the stock lines make yes. a huge difference. Yeah. yeah. And then, of course, that then it changes just by the body shape of whoever's shooting it. You know, you get one guy who shoots the rifle, thinks it kicks like a mule. The next guy shoots it says, what's the issue? Same rifle, same load and everything, but their body shapes are a little bit different. So people really need to understand that. I like to give the information in my, whenever I'm reviewing cartridge bullets and all the rest of it, people want to know about how much does this kick. I'll give them the actual recoil, but that's actual recoil. Then they have to understand felt recoil, which is right. your recoil pad and the comb shape and the flat of the stock and whether it's coming straight line back or it's got a lot of drop at the heel and all that stuff is a factor and there's no way to measure it it's felt if you feel it you feel it yep it's true and i wish i had understood that more when my kids were very first starting shooting you know when they were six and seven even and i thought boy i've, I've got to get them a 243 you know um, and now I look at that and I thought that's a little bit silly. I, I could have taken a six, five Creed more and made it shoot just as soft. I mean, just yeah. download the ammo, get a better butt pad and I would not have needed a new rifle. But then again, I wouldn't have had an excuse to buy a new rifle. So what, what see, good would that there have you done? Go. Now you're thinking, see, <laughs> now Do you hand load a lot. Yes. Um, I mean, I don't, don't handload everything, but of course, it always adds that extra element. I think you know it. You know, when you're hunting with your own ammo, it's oh, like the yeah. guy who makes his own arrows and when he bow hunts and stuff. Yeah. It, anytime you can make your own tools and then go out and use them successfully, it just adds so much more satisfaction. But I also have to shoot a lot of factory ammo because I report on it for what I do as a rifles editor, sporting classics, and working for all these magazines over the years. So I do a mix of everything. But boy, I sure do love hand loading. And when I have, when I'm on my own, not working on a project for anybody else, I will prefer to have my own hand loads and I'll get my pet rifle and work up the load till it's the perfect one for that rifle, for whatever use I'm going to put it to. Yeah. 
Yeah, there is definitely something about it. And I really enjoy it. I, I just, it's so nice to just, yeah, I got 20 minutes, you know, waiting for the kids to get back from soccer practice. And it's great to just go out, out there and just crank out some ammo. But there's no way yeah. I could load for, you know, all the different cartridges I have. I have, a, you know, whatever, five or six that I'll just always load those. And then I try to get review rifles in one of those cartridges so that I um, can use that ammo. But sometimes sure. things come in different things. And, I'll, and anyway, I end up shooting a lot of factory as well. But I, I yeah. try to use my hand loads as much as possible. Well, you know, the nice thing about factory loads these days is the quality is so much better than it was even 25 years ago. Mm -hmm. Gosh, when I was a kid, you know, factory fodder was just, it was what it was and you shot it and you learned to live with it. Uh, sometimes it worked beautifully, sometimes not so much. Sometimes you'd pull, pull back around and the powder would come out because a bullet got stuck in the bore. <laughs> That's not what I call high quality. <laughs> not high quality. No, but, uh, and I agree with you for sure that ammo is very good today, but I, another thing that I've kind of been thinking about lately, I've been talking with some personal friends is. I wish more shooters knew how to find pressure signs on ammunition because I have had maybe five different situations just over the last two or three months where with factory ammo and different rifles and different cartridges, I saw significant pressure um, on, mm. the am on the ammunition. Uh, with factory loads. Factory loads and factory guns. Oh. And part of that is because I'm, you know, just like you, I'm always shooting kind of the new weird stuff, um, mm -hmm. you know, things just coming out. But, um, for example, on, uh, seven PRC, I've seen several yeah, yeah. rifles that had pressure issues. It's a brand new cartridge and it's awesome. I really like seven PRC. In fact, I might even call it my favorite. Um, and certainly it is right now, but, um, but it's because everything's so tight in that chamber. And that's one of the advantages. We have that modern tight tolerances. Right, the right. problem is if we've undersized that chamber even a little bit and all the manufacturers are trying a new reamer, you know, the new cartridge, yep, yep. if it's undersized even a little bit, we got pressure. And I've seen several issues with seven PRC from, um, different. And I, I think I could, I could say it was probably the rifle and not the ammo there, but either way it's factory ammo, factory rifle. You do need to know what those signs are. Same with yeah. eight, six blackout. I had issues there with a the 270. I had issues. Uh, I've seen quite a few of them uh, lately uh, where uh, factory ammo, factory rifle was having having pressure issues. So it's it's something that uh, you, really you want to you want to Google this and, and read through some things because you have to see pictures of what a, a primer looks like when it's over pressure, what the brass looks right. like, etc. Yeah, let's let's give our listeners something to hang our um, research on here. Get them started anyway. Traditionally, the pressure signs would be. Sticky bolt lift. That's like, probably wow. the most obvious to me. Yeah. If you're used to the gun, you know what it feels like, and then one is hard to yep. open that bolt. Eh, that's that's really only one thing. Yeah. And then, of course, difficult extraction is the next stage in that. If it also doesn't want to come out, if you need a hammer to pound that bolt open, you've got a problem. <laughs> mm -hmm. But more subtly, you got a little bit of lift issue going on. You go, hmm, am I feeling this right? You pull it out. Now you're going to look at the case. And what are you going to look for? First thing, primer, right? Cratering. Yep. yep. Yeah. So you could get, there are several things on that primer. You Like, you know, uh, on that primer, you could see a crater that's just kind of like, looks like a little splash. Like you threw it through a pebble in the water and you kind of see some, yep. some splash coming up out, uh, around the dimple where, where the, where it's been hit. 
you want you'll see just a little kind of a splash in the metal. Realm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, or that primer could be excessively flattened. Um, yeah. where there's kind of some rounding around the edge of the primer where it's in, and you'll see that's like, oh, it's just flat all the way to the edge of that primer. That's an issue. Yeah, just flattens right out to the walls of the actual pocket it's sitting in. Yep. There's not that rounded gap off where yeah, transfers in. Yeah. And then sometimes they can back out a little bit. That I found is more problem with head spacing usually. That primer is so much pressure that it backs out. Well, it shouldn't back out unless there's excessive head space, but part of the issue, but it does suggest something going on. Right. And, then, and so if you see on that brass that if it's back, if or the, or the primer can back out, but also the brass uh, can whack against the against the ejectors there. And so if you see, well, yep. depending on what, what your ejector looks like on your rifle, you want to look on your bolt face and see what, the, what your ejectors look like. You know, you might have two of them there, and you'll see those marks imprinted on the outside diameter yeah. of, the, of the head of the case. And now, it depends on your rifle. It, you can be getting marks there and have it be totally normal, a slight subtle mark there. That can be okay. But when you see the big imprint that's nice and shiny, that's where mm-hmm. it's, it's a problematic. Yeah. Now, what about measurements? You take a micrometer uh, and measure the head or the, the length is, you know, you're always going to get a little length increase. Uh, if, you, if you have to end up trimming, you know, if you're, you're a hand loader and you shoot one time and, oh my gosh, you need to trim already. That suggests really high pressure. That's flowing way too much. Usually you get three, maybe four reloads before it's time to trim the neck. Depending, but, of course, on the design. Some, you know, the yeah. sharper shoulder is going right. to hold it in more. Right. But what about the width? Expansion at the, just at the head. That is telling you, you've really got some serious pressure issues if you're getting that head to expand beyond what its tolerances are from the factory. So generally, I, I don't know if a guy can get, yeah, I probably need a micrometer to measure that. It's pretty small. But yeah. Anything else you look for? I was trying to think, see if we've kind of covered the bases. Some, I mean, uh, one that's pretty obvious and usually means um, pretty significant pressure. We're probably way up there. Is if you get some blackening around the edge of the primer on on right. the brass. What I would say though is it really depends on the design of the brass and the cartridge. Um, that uh, sometimes a cartridge can go very over pressure, and you'll see one of these signs that's very obvious, and none of the others. Um, mm-hmm. So it's you really need to recognize all of them because it depends on so many different factors what sign you might be seeing. And I think the reason that this is so critical to recognize is because, like I was mentioning, it can happen in factory ammo. So even if you're not a reloader, you could be shooting some very dangerous ammunition. If you aren't recognizing what's happening, you might just say, eh, and just keep going. Uh, I remember once we were at the shooting range and my uh, my son was shooting, actually a 270. Um, and he, and he shot and he just turned to me. I was at, you know, kind of the next bay over shooting and he says, Oh dad, look cool. There's no primer in this. And I was like, Whoa, that's not cool. <laughs> not cool. Not cool. <laughs> the primer was completely blown out of the case. Oh, oh my that's, gosh. that's not neat. Actually. Uh, yeah. I worry about him too. I, because he's a lefty and I have all right-handed rifles cause he always wants to shoot my new cool rifles. And it's, it's not safe for a lefty to shoot right, righty rifles because they're meant to explode out the action, 
right? They yeah. they want that to happen in one direction. And so if you're a lefty, that's that goes into your face. Now, a ton of lefties shoot righty. Tons of them do. But there is a reason to get a lefty action. It is yeah, safer, that gas especially escape, if you're shooting different right, things. Right, the gas escape. But that would be the hole in the receiver ring up front. And often in the bolts, like the Weatherby bolts has three three holes in it. Those are for escaping gases. And a right-handed shooter, they go off to the right and don't hit your face. And you're a lefty. They're suddenly coming at your face. Yeah. So, yeah, that is something to yeah, concern about. I often and, hear from lefties, I'm sure you do too, who get frustrated because so few models come out yeah. in lefty and they often just end up shooting righty rifles just kind of out of necessity. It, it is yeah, tricky. Yeah. Um, I think something we should say here so people don't get into trouble is, especially hand loaders, given that the factory loads can be overpressure, don't get into hand loading thinking you're going to put a few more grains of powder in there and get a lot faster velocity. You have got to pay attention to these hand loading manuals because those manufacturers, Hornady and Spear and Sierra and Nosler and all the rest of them that put out these hand loading manuals, They've got strain gauges. They're not just guessing at the pressure. They know what the pressure is. So when they say this is our top load for safe pressure, and the, say your cartridge's a, top load is a 65,000 PSI pressure, that's what they're probably getting for their top load. And if you exceed it, it without a strain gauge to really show what's going on, you could be getting 68,000 or 70,000 or who knows what. And that's where you start to see these crazy pressure signs that we've been talking about, which means you're really over the top and need to back out. Because when the manual says our top load delivers this velocity out of a 24-inch barrel in our test barrel, et cetera, et cetera, and that's their maximum load, they're right there at the top. And if you've got a little bit tighter chamber or a little rougher bore or different things that are going to raise the pressures, you're going to go even higher with your pressure. So you've got to start low and work your way up to traditional way. So very, yeah, that's a really, that's a very good point. It's when we talk about these signs of pressure, they are symptoms of a problem, but you may have the problem and not be seeing the symptom yet. So you could be over pressure and not be seeing any symptoms yet. Yeah. One more thing about pressure. What you'll notice is if you've got a chronograph and you're shooting a load and you've got 2,900 feet per second, and you go up another grain or two, whatever the book calls for in your next attempt, and uh, you get 100 feet per second velocity increase. Wow, great. The next one, you go up another grain or two, and you're getting only 50. And the one after that, you might be getting 25. Diminishing returns, what that's telling you is you're reaching your pressure limit, and you're not getting the same jump in performance, so you might as well back off. Because Face it, another 25 or 50 feet per second velocity is not going to change the performance of your, your bullet going down range. It's not going to make any difference to the deer, elk, moose, or even elephant that you shoot. It's not worth the risk. So pay attention to those sorts of things. Yeah, it's true. And it's funny. I think we all have the tendency, you know, we get our whatever 308, we're developing a load for 308 and everybody's like, wow, how fast can I get? And I always <laughs> have to remind myself if I want faster... I should have picked a 30 out six. <laughs> yeah. And if I went faster than that, I should have gone with a 300 Magnum of some kind. Exactly. That's why they make them. Right. Uh, it's, it's funny that everybody, uh, I mean, myself included, as soon as you get a cartridge, how fast can we push this thing? And so yeah. I've tried to, to remind myself and to kind of improve my, my loading practices to just say, no, where, where do I, where does this load want to be? Where is it the most accurate? If I need yeah. something different, I need a different cartridge. 
Yeah. I do you sounds like you generally pick accuracy over top velocities. I definitely you're gonna do, make yeah. a trade. Yeah, yeah. 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 I just there's something about uh, you know, I, I always hear the argument, you know, you, yeah, you really only need one MOA to hunt. And and I totally agree with that. I totally understand that. But I guess the the two parts that, that always win me over are one, that's no fun. It's no fun for me to just uh, accept mediocre a- accuracy. I want to beat it, right? I want to just feel like I have that. And then the I guess the other argument that I always always make with the hunting accuracy question is that's great in theory, but when you miss the lungs by an inch, you will have wanted that accuracy back. <laughs> uh, you know, it's if if you did everything else perfect and you had a one MOA rifle, then yes. But what if you didn't do everything else perfect and that little bit of more accuracy could have helped uh, to yeah. get in there? And so every little bit, every every factor that could push you to be less ac- accurate, let's try to squish them down. And so yeah. you don't have to get crazy. Yes, a one MOA rifle can definitely hunt. But if you're if you're the hand loader and you kind of think like me that you just want to get better and better, then yeah. uh, anyway, I, I don't think it's worth nothing to get a more accurate gun, if I can say two the, negatives. The only caveat I would put on that is I find too many guys that are crazy about precision shooting and super accuracy in their rifles don't put enough time in learning to be good field shots. They're doing everything off the bench, and they're so proud of their quarter MOA rifle. It's like, how could I miss? And they've never gone out and shot after hiking up a 600-foot bluff and getting winded, and they're at the top of the bluff, and they suddenly have to plop down and pick a shooting position because that buck's about to disappear over the next ridge. And they spent all of their time and efforts working up these beautiful loads that shoot so well. You've got to also match that with a lot of field shooting experience. I, I agree with that. In fact, I made the made the mistake myself. We were coyote hunting, oh, maybe two or three months ago, and I have a very accurate Bagara Premier approach. I mean, I know everybody claims a half MOA gun, but this is a legitimate half MOA gun, and they're a rarity, honestly. Um, but this is an extremely accurate gun, and the coyote was at 175 yards. I'm sitting there. I got all the time in the world. The coyote stopped. And I shot right over. I mean, I just, you could see his hair move from the wind. And that has been replaying in my head for so long, thinking like, how did I miss by eight inches at 175 yards? Like, how is that even possible? But when you're in a hunting situation, and especially when you're in a hunting field rest, you're trying to rest the gun in one of those situations. It's just not the same. Yeah. No, I I agree. The best thing we can do as hunters is to practice hunting shooting, not bench shooting. Bench shooting is great to develop your loads in your rifle and get everything tweaked just fine. But when you've got that perfect rifle, now you have to transition to being Daniel Boone and knowing exactly what it's going to do under hunting conditions, different atmospheric conditions, wind deflections, all that stuff takes a lot of time. But the more time you spend with that particular rifle and load, the better you're going to use it. Yeah, and that is one trouble that I've always had is traveling to hunt, even within my own state. I live in southern Utah now. I'm from Idaho, but I live in southern Utah now, and it's it's hot down here. I mean, we live on the surface of the sun in St. George, um, but I could travel up to, you know, Salt Lake kind of area, and it is cold in November. 
Um, and so I can be in a shorts and a t-shirt down here and go up to an area where it's zero degrees all of a sudden. It's yeah. a totally different humidity up there. And so I can have something that I know how my gun is shooting. And then you get up into the woods and that it may perform quite a bit differently. You may see a difference in velocity depending on, you know, humidity, elevation, all these different things. It could be 200 feet per second different. Um, yeah. And so it, it is important when you get to the place where you're hunting to take the time to, to test that gun out. That's hard to do. It's easy to say that. And then, you know, you drive in late at night and early morning, your hunt starts and you say, well, I don't want to shoot now. You know, I, I'm hunting here. I don't want to shoot in this area. <laughs> yeah. And so in a, in a practical sense, it can be real tough to make sure you get that few practice shots and make sure everything's dialed in the place where you're hunting. Another issue I've had, sometimes you go hunting and it's hard to find like a true level hundred degree spot to even oh, yeah. test. And that's exactly a hundred yards, you know? And so it can yeah. be, it can be tough to really test All out more that reason. rifle in the conditions. Yeah, all the more reason to keep working with that rifle and really know it, know it well in different places, different conditions. And you just, you know, I say, beware the man with one gun. He probably knows how to use it. And that's certainly true. Uh, you're, you're mocking me because I'm looking over at my vault room and I have way too many guns. And that is a problem. <laughs> Honestly, yeah, it is. Yeah. Because yeah. sometimes a friend will want to go shooting or something. I'm like, I don't know if I have one gun that's sighted in right now. Yeah, that's a, I, I thought I was the only person with that problem. Oh, my gosh. We could oh. go on and on with that kind of nonsense. Oh, shoot. Yeah, because you're always testing new scopes and taking things yes. off and testing new yep. ammo. And yep. it's like, I don't know what, you know. Anyway, it, I've, I've tried to improve on that recently. Uh, it was about six months ago, a friend asked me to go shooting and I realized I did not a single rifle is really dialed in right Ready now. Ready to go. Like, okay. Yeah, I need to, I need to fix this. <laughs> yeah. And Jim, you've got a problem with too many rifles and I see that in your videos, <laughs> you are always dragging new rifles in and testing this one against that one and inexpensive rifles against expensive rifles. And oh my gosh, that is great for folks who watch your channel, because you are doing the hard work, the expensive work. And it really helps, I think, for folks to see that and go, okay, I don't necessarily agree with everything Jim discovered with his guns because I prefer this over that. And everyone has their own biases and whatnot. But boy, it sure helps people to see the different rifles in action and get some great ideas. So I would recommend that anyone catching this podcast, if you don't already know Jim and his channel, go to um, Backfire on YouTube and you will find all sorts of grand and useful information that Jim puts out. He puts a lot of time and effort and expense into getting this stuff right. I mean, I've seen him buy a handful of scopes. There must have been eight or 10 of them and he kicked them all into the swimming pool. Then glug, 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 down to 10 feet just to show which ones were and were not waterproof. And that's not too many of us are willing to go out and buy a thousand dollar scope and throw it in the swimming pool to test yeah, that sort we're, of thing. We're about to do that one again. That was the best scopes under $500. I'm, I'm probably only a few weeks away from doing the best scopes under a thousand dollars. And when I think now we're talking about eight scopes worth a thousand dollars. It's going to be painful to put these things into the pool. <laughs> but yeah, I do enjoy that, right? testing all, all the gear and I love just learning everything outdoors and hunting. Um, yeah. Anyway, very much enjoyed it. I'm always on your channel checking out everything you, you have. You're just a wealth of knowledge. 
Well, you know, Jim, it's it's nice these days to have so many folks like you and uh, putting out that kind of information so we can access it. Because when I was a kid, you could get Outdoor Life Field and Training Sports the Field, maybe Guns and Ammo, just a few magazines and a very few people writing for those magazines. And you had to trust them. Fortunately, they hired some really good, knowledgeable people, but you had to read that stuff and then apply it. And I think it's really nice to have access to YouTube channels like yours where you're doing testing. If you trust the guy doing the testing, if it makes sense, because there's plenty of channels out there where the guy is just kind of fly by night and really doesn't know what he's doing. So I would recommend folks be a little bit cautious about that. But don't go overboard and think just because you saw Billy Bob's channel and you knew he was full of it and giving you bad information that everybody on YouTube is giving bad information because I can promise you Jim here is not. So we we really yeah. appreciate what you do, Jim. Keep it up. Thank you. Thank you. I enjoy it. I'm learning a little bit as I go. Yeah. Well, that's the thing is that you're learning for us. So we're not only living vicariously through you, but we're saving a bunch of money in the process. We'll let <laughs> you right. make the mistakes. <laughs> All right. Any place else people can find you? You got Facebook and Instagram or any of that stuff or just your uh, Backfire I'm just channel? just YouTube Backfire. The only other one that I've added is Twitter because I'm glad that they're supporting free speech over there. Yeah. Yeah. Finally. Thank goodness. Okay. Well, hey, I want to thank you for helping us out here, Jim. I'm sure everyone who's listened to this has learned something. And they go to backfire, they're going to learn a whole lot more. So let's do it again sometime. Thank you. All right. That's it, everybody. We're on Spomer Outdoors Podcast. We had a good one today. Jim has got uh, the good information, and he's willing to put it out there so you can learn as you watch. So until next time, this is Ron Spomer on Honest and Shoot Straight.